We'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for our day together, and we thank you for revelation. We thank you for this study and your word that we may know what you have in store for your saints. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over your mercy and over your wrath, and we thank you, Lord, that in Christ Jesus, by faith in him, we've been spared from the wrath to come. We ask, Heavenly Father, as we look into the throne room, that we would learn more about how great and how majestic you are. We'd also learn about your great care and love for us. And we also ask, Lord, that you'd help us to think well upon this text as we look at these difficult images and help us to understand them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you here again back in Revelation chapter 4. This is part 2 of the throne room. And I'm probably going to do verse, uh, probably part 3 and part 4 in verses 1 through 11 just to get through it because the imagery is so rich and so dense. But I want to begin by showing you that in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 4, the background to it more than likely is Ezekiel chapter 1. And I want to show you some parallel ideas in both Revelation and also in the book of Ezekiel. First of all, notice both the Apostle John and Ezekiel claim to have visions. We see this in Revelation 4.2 and Ezekiel 1.1. Now, what did they have a vision of? Well, both attest to the fact that they had a vision of the throne of God. We see this in Revelation 4.2-3, and also Ezekiel 1.26. Now, continuing on, they also had a vision, as it says in Revelation 4.3 and Ezekiel 1.28, of the rainbow. And we had talked about how that alluded to God's faithfulness, both to pour wrath upon his enemies, but also to be covenantly faithful to save those that he's in covenant with. We also see that in Revelation 4 or 5, there's an allusion to the lightning and thunder. This is the wrath of God being demonstrated, and it comes from the throne. We see the same thing in Ezekiel 1.13. Revelation 4, 6, there's a unique expression here. It occurs three times in Revelation. You see a reference to a glass sea, that looks like crystal. The same reference is made also in Ezekiel one twenty two, when Ezekiel sees God on the throne. His throne is on an expanse that was like crystal, as well. And finally, you also see a reference to the four cherubim. These angels in Revelation four six are really identical to those in Ezekiel one five. Now there is one difference. They're also very similar to the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. But what I want you to see here is Ezekiel 1 is certainly the background behind the verses that we're covering in Revelation chapter 4 to the throne room. And we might ask ourselves, what is the connection? Why would John be seeing the same things that Ezekiel saw? Well, because he was seeing the same things. (laughs) Pretty simple. He was seeing the same God in the same throne room that Ezekiel did. I think that that's number one. But number two, there's also, I think, a connection in the theme between Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. And that is, notice in Ezekiel's day, God's wrath is being poured upon the people of Israel and Judah for what? For their idolatry. Think about Ezekiel 1.1. It begins with the prophet at Kedar, the river. And in that river, he's with all of the exiles, right? All the exiles, why? Because they're under the wrath of God. So that's where Ezekiel begins. If there's one book that you're going to point to that mentions the wrath of God more than any other, it is the book of Ezekiel. 
connection is the wrath of God was being poured out then. And again, I think I mentioned that in Ezekiel, the wrath of God is mentioned more in that book than in any other book in the entire Bible, which I think is pretty fascinating. And sure enough, what do we have in John's day? The wrath of God is going to be poured out. But now it's not on Israel or Judah. It's going to be poured upon the world. So there's a reversal. The wrath of God that's coming upon Israel and Judah in Ezekiel's day is now, when it comes to the 70th week of Daniel, is going to be poured upon primarily what? The Gentile world. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. I want to show you this. This is the fourth seal. And I'll kind of skip in the middle of the verse. Here, Hades and death are being personified as, as beings, living beings. And the idea is that authority has been given to them over a quarter of the earth. Listen to what it says, Revelation 6, 8. It says, Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and of the wild beasts of the earth. Notice those four things. Sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. I know I've said this probably ad nauseum to some of you, but those are the identical four means of God's wrath that he poured out upon Israel and Judah in Ezekiel 14.21. So write down Ezekiel 14.21. That's your connection. So the same wrath that God was pouring out in the days of Ezekiel on Israel and Judah is now coming upon the whole world to the point where they're going to lose a quarter of the earth's population. Is everyone with me? So that's the connection here. The wrath of God is now being poured upon the world, and God is going to use the 70th week of Daniel to take Israel again to be his unique possession. He'll bring them to faith in Messiah by the end of the 70th week. One more passage. I'll just cite this to you. Think about Luke 21. Remember I talked about in the Olivet Discourse? There's three parallel passages. You have Matthew 13, or Matthew 24, rather, Mark 13, and you have Luke 21. Matthew 24 and Mark 13 are synonymous in that they focus on the future. Okay? In other words, in the Olivet Discourse, both Matthew and Mark are focusing on the future 70th week of Daniel. Luke is unique in that he focuses, yes, on that, but he also incorporates discussion about the this, this 70-year, 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. Listen to what it says in Luke twenty-one twenty-four. It says, They will fall by the edge of the sword, talking about the Israelites, and they will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, when are those times? Well, in the 70th week of Daniel. So again, I think that's the connection between Ezekiel 1 and the book of Revelation. The wrath of God that was poured out in Ezekiel's day was upon Israel and Judah. Now that same wrath is being poured upon the world itself. Now let's turn to verse 5 here, where we see that the wrath proceeds from the throne of God. It says, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. First thing I want to look at here with you, I want to point to the screen. Notice it talks about these seven lamps, and you don't have to wonder what those seven lamps are referring to. They are, in fact, what? The seven spirits of God. Okay, so we know that. Now, here's the problem. You and I are fiercely monotheistic as Christians. We believe in one God. 
but we're also Trinitarians. We believe in one God and three persons. By the way, that's not a contradiction. It would be a contradiction to say we believe in one God and three gods at the same time in the same relationship. We don't believe in that. We believe in one God and three persons. And so naturally, us as monotheistic Trinitarian Christians ask ourselves, what's this business about seven spirits? Well, it's an allusion back to Zechariah 4. The term seven often has to do with the idea of fullness. So the idea here would be it has to do with the fullness of God's Holy Spirit around the throne. Okay? In fact, remember in Zechariah chapter 4, if you remember in the Old Testament, God had promised through Zerubbabel that he would rebuild the temple. And remember there's a famous passage, many of you probably have had it on your refrigerator. It's the refrigerator magnet verse, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Well, God was promising that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he would finish the temple in Zerubbabel's day. Well, in Zechariah 4.10, if you turn your Bibles, by the way, this will help. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah 4.10. I'll just show you where this is. You'll see a reference to the sevenfold eyes of the Lord, which is, again, a reference to the Holy Spirit. And keep your Bibles handy. We'll be turning back and forth quite a bit. So again, Zechariah 4, verse 10, it says, For who has despised, this is the Lord speaking through Zechariah, for who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, by the way, let's stop there. The plumb line right there is more than likely probably the capstone. That's probably a better rendering. It's only used once in the Hebrew and all of the Bible in the Old Testament. So it's what's called a hapax legomena. It only happens once and never again. All right? So it's probably the capstone that would finish. Now, why would that be important? Because when the capstone is finished in this rebuilt temple, people would say, yes, God was faithful to what he had promised. It goes on to say, these are the eyes of the Lord. That is these seven So the seven were what? The eyes of the Lord which ranged to and fro throughout the earth. So do you see then that God's spirit that was going to complete the work of the temple is referred to as a sevenfold sevenfold eyes or lamps in the book of Zechariah. That same imagery is used throughout the book of Revelation. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 5, 6, and you'll also see that God's spirit has been poured out. And you'll see the reference to a seven eyes again. Revelation 5, 6. This is still in the throne room. John says, Revelation 5, 6, he says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So again, the seven is the idea of fullness. And so that's what's going on here. It's the fullness of the spirit is around the throne. Now, notice the big thing I want you to see in verse 5 here is what I have highlighted read. It talks about flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. This is an allusion to what we call storm theophany. It is a way in which God shows that all of the wrath that proceeds through the entire book of Revelation, it comes from his throne. So we don't have to wonder, well, I wonder if this is just the anger of man or the anger of Satan, the wrath of man, the wrath of Satan. No, it's the wrath of God. Okay, so anytime you come to the seventh, remember there's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Anytime you come to the seventh, 
it opens up to the next, and you have a storm theophany. Let me give you an example. This is at the seventh seal, Revelation 8.5. It says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed what? Peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, right away, when you see that, that brings you back to Revelation 4 or 5, and you say, hey, I know that that all stems from what? The throne of God. That's where it comes from. Now, turn yourself to the next seventh, which would be the seventh trumpet, in Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. Notice here in verse 11, I'm sorry, in verse 15, rather, of Revelation 11, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever. Notice right there where it says the kingdom of the world has become. That's something called a proleptic aorist, meaning it's spoken of as if it's already occurred, but it has not yet occurred in time and in history, right? Why? Well, because it's so certain that this will happen, the biblical writer speaks as if it already has. Now, skip down to verse 19. So this is where the wrath is going to be finished. Verse 19, it says, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were what? Flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and great hailstorm. Okay, so again, that's the seventh trumpet. And again, at that seventh, you have the flashes of lightning and the sounds of thunder. It brings you back to the throne room. And you say, oh, of course, all of this is coming from the throne. It's the wrath of God. One more seven, the seventh bowl. Turn your Bibles to the seventh bowl, Revelation 16, 18. You want to see how John has constructed this book. This is occurring right after the battle of Armageddon. And this is the seventh bowl. And what's very interesting is the seventh bowl opens up as well. And it really is never considered finished because the wrath of God goes upon the enemies of God unto eternity. Revelation sixteen eighteen it says, And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was an earthquake, such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. But again, notice the references to the flashing lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. So at every seven, you see that the wrath of God is stemming from the throne. And so that's the key phrase right there. Revelation 4, 5, the underline. Where does it all come from? It comes from the throne. Right now, when we get to Revelation chapter 6, I want to be showing you all the different views, whether it's post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, all the different views, pre-trib, We're going to look at when does the wrath of God start. All you and I have to do to get an accurate eschatology is to understand when does the wrath of God start. And this is essential for us. Because, for instance, post-tribulationists, they believe the wrath of God occurs on one day and then extends later, but it begins on one day, the Battle of Armageddon. But wait a minute, that's at the end of the 70th week. What about the seven seals and the seven trumpets? That comes from the throne room, and it's the wrath of God. Right? So what we're going to show is this is really a key to understanding when the wrath of God begins. So think of it in this way. Again, Revelation 4 or 5, out of from the throne comes what? The lightning and the sounds of thunder. And so then you have it happen at every seven. The seventh seal opens up to the seven trumpets. 
And then you have, again, at the seventh seal, the lightning and the sounds of thunder. At the seventh trumpet, it opens up to the seven bowls, and you have the lightning and the thunder again. And then at the seventh bowl, you have the lightning and the thunder again. Now, notice I mentioned that when you get to the bowl, it opens up, but where does it conclude? And this is a clue, I think, as to how John perceives the wrath of God. Remember, Jesus returns in Revelation 19. But you have this thousand-year-long reign where Christ is reigning on the earth in Revelation 20 with his saints. But remember, in Revelation, you can read about this, in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15, after Christ reigns for a thousand years, Satan is released and he gathers all of the nations to battle against Jerusalem. And what God does is he calls fire down upon these enemies at the battle of Gog and Magog, and he wipes them out. Then what does he do with Satan? He throws him in the lake of fire. And then what do you have? You have the white throne judgment. And at the white throne judgment, the enemies of God, unbelievers, are thrown into the lake of fire. And how long does that last? It's forever. It's exactly right. It's forever. Without end. And so that's, I think, the, one of the main things about the seven bowls opening up and never really finishing. So three takeaways from this structure. Number one, the open-ended nature of the bold judgment shows God's wrath is everlasting on his enemies. Okay? Now, turn your Bibles to something that's interesting. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Remember, we talked about the day of the Lord. When does the wrath come? Well, it comes in the day of the Lord. And I want you to see, though, how long the day of the Lord lasts. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Second Peter 3, 10 Remember, Peter's dealing with opponents who are saying, hey, this wrath isn't going to come. Jesus isn't going to come back. You can live any way you want. What's all this nonsense that these apostles are talking about? Peter says, no, that's not true. St. Peter 3.10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So stop right there. There's no warning as to when the day of the Lord comes. But notice what he includes now inside the day of the Lord. He says, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Now, when does that happen? Well, doesn't Revelation 20, we still have the heavens and the earth, don't we? But in Revelation 21, what do you have? You have the new heavens and the new earth. So we know that according to the Apostle Peter, the day of the Lord extends through the millennial kingdom. So if the wrath of God is being poured out in the day of the Lord, it extends throughout the millennial kingdom. Why? Because after that, the battle of Gog and Magog. The people come as incited by Satan to launch an invasion against Jerusalem, and God judges them. So I want you to understand that those who say that the day of the Lord is a one-day event, as the post-tribulationalists do, at the battle of Armageddon, they don't have a leg to stand on. How can the day of the Lord be a one-day event when Peter includes the new heavens and new earth in it? Of course, it doesn't make sense. Another big takeaway, dear brothers and sisters, is that if all of the wrath comes from the throne of God, so do the blessings. So do the blessings for God's people, right? In fact, notice here in Revelation twenty eleven, this is at the white throne judgment. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled, no place was found for them. Let me show you the connection. Revelation 4, 5, from the throne came the fifth storm theophany. Lightning and sounds of thunder. Then you had the lightning and sounds of thunder at the seventh seal. 
seventh trumpet, seventh bowl, and all of a sudden now you have eternal judgment in the lake of fire. And where does it come from? The white throne. All wrath comes from the throne of God. If anyone says that, no, this is the wrath of man or the wrath of Satan, er, wrong. (laughs) John says, no, it all comes from the throne of God. If we don't understand that, we're going to be led astray by false teachers that say, no, this isn't the wrath of God. It's only the wrath of man, the wrath of Satan, etc. Okay. All right, now let's keep moving. We see the storm theophany. One thing I want to just point out is the storm theophany isn't something new to the Bible. We see it in Exodus 19.16. Oh, we got a question here. Not really a question, but at the time of the crucifixion, there was an earthquake, and I have a feeling it relates to all this. You know... It certainly does. It shows that God's wrath was being poured out on his son. I think that's the imagery. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else have any questions? I just have a real quick one, and I know you've addressed it before, but when we have the hurricanes today and the earthquakes today, excuse me, and people are saying that's the wrath of God and, you know, New Orleans is being judged by God. Yeah, it's simply not true. (laughs) We can't know that. Okay. One of, one of the reasons, Luann, we can't know that is because... <laughs> Notice when the wrath comes, we're not left in the dark. We're shown what it looks like. And the wrath of God comes like a thief, meaning it's unexpected. The wrath is always depicted as something to come in the eschatological age. So anything now, we can't know about. So, yeah. Yep. Thank you. This is a little bit off topic, but we're right here in Second uh, Peter 3.10. Just before that, in 3, uh, 8 and 9, you hear people, uh, universalists and, and emergence and such, uh, talking about there's no judgment. And it just right before this, you have the verse that says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but to come yes. to repentance. And they'll, they'll use that verse to say, really, there is no judgment. Everyone does come to salvation. Sure. You know, God doesn't want anybody to perish. Well, the point I want to make is there's a difference between his moral will and his decreative will. Amen. And then, and then yes. right in, in 310, 3.9 is his moral will. He doesn't want anybody to murder. He doesn't want anybody to lie, but right. we have the ability to uh, to do that. And uh, um, then in 310, it's just the decreative will, what we're looking at here, you know, the God's wrath and judgment. Yeah. Right. Well said, Mike. And, you know, uh, we had Adam Aline once was in here, and he did a really good job in a very short span of time showing us exegetically in that passage when he says he wishes none to perish. The idea of all there would be more of a reference to the elect. And he proves that in context, that when he desires that none would perish, it's a reference specifically to the elect, not all people in general. But you're right in making the distinction also between God's moral will, the things that he desires, that all would come to repentance, and the things that he brings about through his decretive will. You and I cannot thwart his decretive will, but we can thwart his moral will. In fact, a great passage that we can see this, turn your Bibles to Revelation 17. As long as we're talking about the book of Revelation, we'll see the difference between God's moral will and his decreative will. Yeah, it's like a decree. He makes a decree. Yep. Revelation chapter 17. Notice, we'll start in verse 14. Notice the, these are the, the beasts, or the kings rather, that align themselves with the beast. This is Revelation 17, 14. It says, They will make war on the Lamb, 
and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called the chosen and faithful. All right now, continue down where in verse 18, or verse 17 rather, it says, For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Okay, so how many know that it would be evil and a violation of God's moral will to fight against the Lamb and to align yourself with the Antichrist? Well, of course, that's a violation of God's moral will. But notice in verse 17, it's fulfilling God's decretive will. Notice it says it's to fulfill his purpose in being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until what? The words of God are fulfilled. So that's fulfilling God's decretive will, and that's exactly what Mike's pointing out. Okay, so God's decretive will will always stand, although we can thwart his moral will. We can certainly murder, although the, Bible, the book of the Bible says, thou shalt not murder. But when God says that such and such is going to happen, it will indeed happen because it's his decretive will. Yeah, Brian. Uh, I'm a little confused, and uh, hasn't been the first time. Yeah. <laughs> but, Join the club. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, I've heard good preachers make a differentiation between the wrath of God and the wrath of man. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying no, that it all originates with God. And, and I accept that. Exactly. Then she asked her question, and you said no, that like the, the Hurricane Katrina, no. But doesn't it all originate with God by him allowing that to happen? Sure. He's on the throne, and he's sovereign over all things. But think about, like, in, is it John 9? where they asked Jesus, say, hey, whose sin was it that this man was born blind? What is his parents or his? He says, well, it was neither. So they had an either or. It must be the wrath of God because his sin or the sin of his descendants. And Jesus says it's neither. He cuts the Gordian knot, comes up with a third option. What's the third option? Well, it was actually so that God would be glorified. So they made an error. So how how do we know then? Let's say someone gets, um, we have a Christian who gets sick. And do we say, well, you know what? They must be sinning. must be the wrath of God upon them because of sin. Or is it so that God would build them up in their faith? We had tornadoes that hit the Bible belt and took out many, many churches. And I'm sure there's left-wing Christians in America that say, ah, those intolerant ones got judged. But you and I can end up doing the same thing when we say, oh, the tornado that took out the homosexual gathering, that's certainly the wrath of God. The fact of the matter is we don't have a prophet or apostle now to give us divine revelation. What we do have is the finished work of God. Even think about how the Pharisees, remember they come to John the Baptist, and he says, who told you to flee from what? The wrath to come. It's not the wrath now, it's the wrath to come. Think about uh, Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so we can conclude, hey, the wrath of God is being poured out, but what's very interesting is if you read through the rest of Romans 1, it's a judgment of hardening so that we have hard hearts. We end up worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creators. Well, when you get to Romans 2, 4, the very next chapter, he talks about those who have this hardened heart, they're storing up wrath for what? The day of wrath. So the wrath is always put in the eschatological age, and when it breaks forth, they will not escape. 
In fact, I'll show you a passage in 1 Thessalonians. So the point is you and I don't have to worry now about when, whether any given event is the wrath of God. We don't, we're not given that knowledge. Our job is to make disciples of all nations, bringing them to Christ. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that's our message to say, hey, there's a million ways to get out of this world, be killed out. And then after that, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed once for man to die. After that comes judgment. That's our message to the, the world now. Yep. And just a real quick, because I think what you said was perfect, too, because we can't know these things now because the next event on God's eschatological timetable is the rapture. Exactly. That's exactly right, because we've been spared from that wrath. And that's what we'll talk about at the end here, yes. Tom Gonzer's got one. Yep. Yeah. Romans five, uh, Romans five three. Yeah, and uh, and then it says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, yeah, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. So it's it's through those tribulations and that when you were talking about the blind, exactly, uh, God okay. uses those things for the believer to enhance our faith. In fact, that's what Romans 8 is about, too. He uses them for our good. Exactly right. By the way, the term tribulations there, some people will use that, and they'll say, wait a minute, we've been promised tribulation. Why are you saying we're going to be exempt from the 70th week of Daniel? Well, because there's a difference in tribulation. There are tribulations that Christians go through during this age, but when the 70th week of Daniel comes, we've been promised to be exempt from that time of trial. Revelation 3.10, because you've been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So, great distinction, Tom. Yes, we go through trials. God uses them to build us up in the faith, to show that our faith is genuine. He refines us like gold. But there's a distinction in tribulation, thalipsis. There's thalipsis that you and I go through in this world. Then there is the thalipsis the tribulation that only the unregenerate will go for. In fact, in Revelation 3.10, remember he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell what? Upon the earth. A phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, is a phrase that is used exclusively for unbelievers in the book of Revelation. So thank you for bringing, that's a great verse to bring up. Okay, one thing I want to point out here is notice that the thunder, lightning, and flashes were seen at Mount Sinai. And remember, when you get to the next chapter, Exodus 20, the people are afraid to even hear from God what? Lest they die. So this God that we serve is no cosmic cream puff. He is the holy and righteous God, isn't he? And therefore, we need a mediator who can make us compatible to be in his presence. Okay? That's what Jesus Christ does for us so that you and I are no longer subject to this wrath. Again, Ezekiel 1.13, in the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. So notice Ezekiel saw the very same things, very similar to what John was seeing. Why? Because they both saw the throne room of God. All right? And that's a storm theophany, again, that happens at every seventh. Seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl. Now, let's continue on with the scene before the throne. Revelation 4, 6, it says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. 
Now, notice the simile that we have. Anytime you see a like, you're dealing with a simile. So it wasn't literally a sea of glass, but that's what it looked like. It was like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, what's interesting is this is where the throne is, de- is depicted elsewhere as being upon. So before the throne, or what the throne is upon, is something like this sea of glass that looks like crystal. And one of the questions is, well, where does this imagery come from? Well, we see this also at Mount Sinai. When the Israelites, especially the 70 elders and Moses with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, when they see God, his throne is on this pavement-like structure that was like sapphire. It was clear. In fact, turn your Bibles to Exodus 24, verses 9 through 10. Exodus 24, 9 through 10. Again, this is at Sinai. And so we see the same throne that comes down now in this mediated engagement with Moses. Notice it says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be pavement of sapphire as clear, and here's where we get the crystal idea, I think, or the glass idea as well, in Revelation 4, 6. Notice it says it was clear as the sky itself. Now notice what absolutely enthralls Moses as he writes this, because he was part of this. Verse 11, he says, Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. Notice it was shocking that a God like this, who is enthroned on a sea of glass or a sea of sapphire-like pavement that has lightning coming from his throne, it's absolutely astonishing that he doesn't lash out and wipe out those who are around him. Why didn't he? Well, because he showed mercy, didn't he? He showed his chesed, his loving kindness upon Moses. And so Moses becomes a mediator to the rest of the people. The rest of the people can't see him. They can't approach him lest they die. So we have a mediator now. Who's our great mediator? The ultimate mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Yep. Okay, now let me show you where I think John is borrowing this imagery from. I think he's seeing it, but I want you to see the connection again to Ezekiel 122. It says, now over the heads of the living beings, these are the four. We're going to talk about those living beings next week, these cherubim. The living beings, he says, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. So this is above them, actually. Notice the crystal. Same term used in the Septuagint of Ezekiel 122. We have a direct connection. All right, now, what does the sea represent? I think it represents two things. Number one, God's sovereign rule over all creation. God is sovereign over all creation. He rides upon the sea. When he creates all things, he comes upon the sea, and he makes order out of disorder. And so it has to do with his rule over all creation. But in the book of Revelation, this rule over all creation is a battle because there's a usurper. The usurper is the Antichrist. Revelation 13.1, where does he come from? The sea. The Antichrist comes in Revelation 13.1 out of the sea. And so you have a usurper. You have a false trinity. You have Satan. You have the Antichrist, the beast. And you have the false prophet. That's the false trinity. And they are also going to vie for control over the earth. They come from the sea 
and they are going to try to establish the city of perfection, Babylon. But God is going to overthrow him because he's the God who rides on the heavenly sea. And he's going to throw them down and he's going to tear down Babylon and he's going to bring us what? By his grace and power, the new Jerusalem. That's what the battle ultimately is all about. So let me show you where some of this imagery comes from. Notice this picture here. This is from Solomon's temple. This is of a sea. It was called a molten sea. And notice the oxen here. Okay, and there was 12 of them. And when Solomon builds his temple, he builds it after the instructions in Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, turn your Bibles there very quickly. Exodus 30, verses 18 through 19. In fact, well, you know what? For the sake of time, let's not do that. Um, let me just summarize Exodus 30, 18 through 19. Exodus 30, verses 18 through 19, Aaron and his sons were to go through this golden laver, which had water in it. It was the sea, the golden sea. And they were to be washed in it so that they could partake in being priests in the temple of the Most High. Now, here's where I do want you to turn your Bibles. I want you to see how Solomon ends up building this in the temple. 1 Kings 7, 23 through 25. 1 Kings 7, verses 23 through 25. 1 Kings 7, 23 through 25. Verse 23, it says, Now this is again Solomon. He had built the temple. It says, Now he made the sea of cast metal. And that's what we're looking at right here. Ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in form. And its height was five cubits and thirty cubits in circumference. Under its brim, girds went around encircling it ten to a cubit, completely surrounding the sea. The gourds were in two rows, cast with the rest. Verse 25, it says, It stood on twelve oxen. Now notice the way the oxen face. There's twelve of them, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them, and all of their rear parts turned inward. Now, the Mishnah records... Now again, we don't have to... This isn't infallible, but the Mishnah understood the sea to represent God's rule. And the idea is that these animals will look out to the four corners. And it was as if God's rule stemmed not just on Israel, but all of the Gentile nations. The four corners of the earth were under the dominion of Yahweh who rode upon the sea. All right? And what that meant then is if you're going to be a priest who is going to serve in this God's temple, who was so holy and so sovereign, you had to be clean. That was the idea. Now... When you get to Herod, Herod's temple, when he rebuilds it, it's really very similar, except instead of the oxen, he uses 12 lions. But again, they look out to the four corners, all right? Now, I want you to think about Solomon's temple and also Herod's temple have this brazen sea, and you had to wash in it if you were a priest. Now, let me just do a quick aside. A quick aside, this is a little bit of a bunny trail. Remember in Mark 7... When Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands? And why are the Pharisees so upset? Because they took the law for the priests who had to wash in this sea. They tried to apply it to everyone, okay? They tried to apply it to everyone, so they were falsely binding. What applied only to Aaron and his sons, they tried to apply to everyone. And so that's why Jesus had to say, no, you're nullifying the word of God by your traditions. 
right? So that's a perfect case where someone's binding someone else beyond what Scripture binds them to, okay? Now, here's the point. The sea, again, represents the very rule of God. And you and I have to realize that this God is the one who rules over all of creation. And it's really symbolized by the fact that he is often depicted in the scriptures as riding upon this heavenly sea. In fact, David Ahn, the great scholar in the book of Revelation, he writes the word biblical commentary. He would cite this passage a little bit differently. Let me read it, and then I'll explain the way he would render it. Psalm 29, 9 through 10, it says, The voice of Yahweh makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Verse 10, he says, The Lord says, I'm sorry, the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Now, David Ahn would cite it this way. Instead of saying the Lord sat as king at the flood, he would say it should be rendered that the Lord sat over the heavenly ocean. All right? The big discussion over this term, if I can point to it, is the term Mabul. Now, Mabul often has to do with the flood that God poured out upon the world, but also can be rendered the heavenly ocean. Now, further evidence of that or support of it is earlier in Psalm 29.3, if I can find it here, i got to scroll down. Psalm 29.3, it says, The voice of Yahweh is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over many waters. In fact, this is a theme throughout the scriptures. Yahweh is depicted as riding upon the heavenly sea. We see in, no pun intended, Psalm 148.4, it says, Praise him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Now, what are these waters that are above the heavens? Well, more than likely, that's the heavenly sea. Give me another reference, Psalm 104.3. It says, He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. So a lot of this imagery, the Jewish mind had this idea that God was so sovereign that he rode upon the celestial sea. Yeah, Peter. Um, Eric, um, weren't the, uh, and I don't know if this ties to it, but uh, weren't the Jews afraid of the sea? Exactly. And that represents the rule of God. So is that, is that how they're tied they, together? They look somehow? at it as the abyss, and it is. And so what we have to see, and that's what I want to get to, is I think there's a distinction. See, God rules upon the sea. And so this is imagery. I don't think that there's a literal ocean there. I think the imagery is he rules over the abyss. He rules over every part of creation. That's the imagery that we're to see. So in Revelation, where does the usurper come from? He comes from the sea. And so what... John is showing us is that God is sovereign over that. He rules over that. Okay? Now, think about this principle that I showed you last time. Remember, we saw that when God had Moses in, construct the tabernacle, according to Exodus 25:40, he did it after the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. And so it seems that everything in the tabernacle was made after the pattern in the heavenly realm. And so what I think then we have is perhaps we could conclude that this sea that they had in the temple was a representation of this sea-like glass that Yahweh's throne is actually upon. Now, is it an actual sea? No, it just looks like that. But it represents his authority and rule. And again, you hit it, I think, very astutely. To the Jewish mind, the sea represents the abyss. And there's good reason. By the way, 
in Revelation 11:7 and then in Revelation 17:8 the antichrist is depicted as coming from the abyss. But in Revelation 13:1 it's synonymous with the sea. So I think that's the imagery that we are to understand is that God rules over all of creation even this usurper that comes from the sea is going to be thrown down. He is that sovereign. All the wrath that he pours out, he pours out upon his enemies, and he's capable of dispatching them. So you and I can say, you know what? I'm not going to sweat the threats of what this world can do to me, what Satan and his minions can do to me. God has complete control. There's also a great contrast. I want you to see the difference between God's wrath being poured out on his enemies and yet his salvation for his people. Notice in Revelation 15, this sea of glass is noted again. Revelation 15, verses 1 through 2, John later says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last. Those used to be the seven bowls. Because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps, holding harps of God. Now, notice here, we have the sea of glass referred to again, and now it's mixed with fire. And the fire is often, again, a symbol of God's wrath. What's very interesting is when you get to Revelation 22, then all of a sudden the sea of glass turns into what? A river of water. And it's a river of water of life. Notice it says, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So, again, that crystal, is that crystal. notice the term crystal? It's only used twice in the entire Bible. It's once, and that is in the New Testament, I should say. It's used once in Revelation 4, 6, that we were just reading, and it's used in Revelation 22, 1. So the great contrast that we are to see is that the sea of glass from where the wrath comes for the enemies of God is also the same place where the river of water of life comes for the people of God. It all comes from where? Notice, it comes from the throne of God. The throne of God is where the wrath comes, and it's where the blessings come for his people. And so there's a great contrast that you and I are to look at. The wrath of God comes from his throne for the enemies of God, but the blessings come from that same throne for those who will trust in Jesus and they're forever. All right? Now, one other thing I want to point out is notice something very interesting. It says those who had been victorious, these are believers. So they're the ones who were martyred during the tribulation period. They come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. Then they're murdered for their belief. Notice it says those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name were what? Standing on the sea of glass. So the sea of glass is where? It's the, the pavement, as it were, for the throne room of God. But who's standing with them? Believers are. Believers are saying, so when you go to Mount Sinai, the people look up and only the elders at that and they see God alone on the sea of glass, right? But now who's with God but believers? That's the difference between the old and the new covenant, isn't it? Praise God. Now we're with him, reigning with him. In fact, he says in Revelation 5.10, and they will reign with him. He made them priests forever and they will reign with him on the earth right? The people of God will rule with him. And so I think that's a beautiful, beautiful depiction. 
All right, now, what big lesson that we learn here from all of this is that we've been spared. I want to get to 1 Thessalonians. I want to talk a little bit about this. Revelation 4 through 5, what we're going to see in those chapters is that the throne room is the source of God's wrath. When you get to Revelation 6 through 20, we see that the wrath is now poured out. So that's the significance of the throne room. Where does it all come from? It comes from the throne of God, this wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4, I want you to think about how Paul talks about the privilege that you and I have as believers, but also our, our responsibility to live as those who are part of the day, not those who are part of the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4, he says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So let's stop there. The day of the Lord that we've been talking about in this presentation comes like a thief in the night. The term there, kleptase, has to do with a robber who relies upon stealth to get what he gets done. Okay, there's another term, lace which is the turn of a robber who uses force, who uses violence. This is kleptase. So the image here is that the day of the Lord comes stealthy. You don't know when it's going to come. There's going to be no precursor prior to it. And notice he says, while they, and notice the they is juxtaposed to the brethren. The brethren are believers, but the they are what? Well, they're unbelievers. And so notice it says, while they are saying, notice it's not us saying it, but they are going to be saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Now, let me ask you, in Revelation chapter 6, when we get there, at the fourth seal, you lose a quarter of the earth's population due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Notice he says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief while they're saying peace and safety. In other words, they're declaring that this is the case. We have peace and safety. Would you be declaring that when you're losing a quarter of the earth's population? The worst warfare that the world has ever known? Well, of course not. So the day of the Lord then has to occur prior to that. So guess what? It more than likely occurs at the beginning of the six, the Revelation chapter 6 the first six seals. Okay? That's important because why? Well, because a lot of people are claiming that that's only the wrath of man. All right? Now notice when it comes, it comes suddenly like labor pains. Now let's put some verses together. Labor pains, remember that term Odin? Has to do with birth pains of a woman. Where did we see that? We saw that in the Olivet Discourse. In Mark 13a, Jesus says that when you see the wars and famines, and all of those things that you end up reading about in Revelation 6, he says what? They're just the beginning of birth pains. So that term, labor pains, is a technical expression for the inception of the day of the Lord. In fact, it's borrowed right from Isaiah 13.8. So when you see labor pains, remember three verses. Isaiah 13.8, Mark 13.8, Matthew 24.8. All of them are references to Odin, labor pains, which is the beginning of the day of the Lord. Now, does a woman know when her water's going to break? Does she know when she's going to go into labor pain? No, it comes suddenly. There's no warning. I can attest to that fact. My wife was pregnant. We were watching Bill Cosby, yucking it up, art, 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 laughing, and all of a sudden her water broke, and I told her to put it back. <laughs> I told her, I really did. I said, well, you've got to put that back. It's five and a half weeks out. We don't have to, you know, he's going to be early. We can't do that. 
It comes suddenly, doesn't it? All right? But notice the contrast. So that's utter destruction that comes suddenly upon the unbelieving world. But in verse 4, there's a but. He says, but you, brethren. Now listen to what he says to us. He says, you are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of the day. So let's stop there. There's two different groups. Sons of the day. Those are those who are in Christ and sons of the dark. And he says in verse 5, he says, For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. The term alert is another one that we saw from the Olivet Discourse. Gregareo. You've probably heard me talk about this many times. If I were to summarize what that passage means or that term, it means to be found in the faith in both doctrine and deed. Why? Because then if you're found in the doctrines of the faith, it means you're a real believer. And if you're a believer, the wrath of God isn't coming upon you. Okay? Now, notice what he exhorts us to do then. This is what I want to leave you with. First Thessalonians 5, 8 through 9, he says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. By the way, This phrase here, I took it right from the NESB. Then when I researched it, I realized it wasn't the way I would render it. There's a participle right here that really happens simultaneously to the subjunctive verb here. Here's the point. Here's the way we should render it. It should be rendered, but since we are of the day, let us be sober sober, and let us put on, or I, I would render it this way, but since we are of the day, let us be sober by putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So that's the means by which you and I are going to be prepared. Now, Bob DeWay wrote an article about the armor in Ephesians 6. And if you remember his article, what he concludes is that all of the pieces of the armor have to do with what? The gospel. And I think the same thing applies here. By the way, this is a quotation from Isaiah 59. And so the way that you and I can stand firm and not be moved as the day comes, the day of the Lord, is to be found, what? In the faith. So all of those, all those issues here, the breastplate of faith, love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, that's the gospel. So don't think that you have to put on specific pieces of armor mystically. The idea is that you have to stand in the gospel. And he says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath. Well, what wrath? Well, the wrath associated with the day of the Lord. That was the topic just six verses earlier. And he says, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it beautiful, beautiful, brothers and sisters, all you and I have to do is stand firm in the gospel. That's the means by which you and I are going to be spared. And so the throne room is is the throne where all of the blessings of life come upon us. But that same throne room from the enemies of God is the throne where all of the wrath comes from. And so today, as we look at the throne room, remember your privileged position by your faith in Jesus Christ. The wrath of God that will be poured out will never affect you. You have not been destined to wrath. The eschatological wrath, you've been spared. And so no matter what problems you have, maybe you have financial troubles or health troubles, if you've been spared from the wrath of God and have your forgiveness of sins from God, you have the world by the tail. I think that's good news that we have to learn from the throne room of God. So with that, let me just take a couple of questions or comments if anyone has anything, or we can conclude for next week. Yeah, Luann. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13.13, 13, 
Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Yes. Yes, amen. They last forever, don't they? Yeah. And love is the greatest of them all. Yes, amen. Eric, uh, not to double back on the Jews again, but yeah. what was... What, yeah, sorry, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> Their issue with uh, the lake or the abyss, yeah, was it their fear of God? Was um, it their rebelliousness that they knew they had? Where where is it coming from? What I yeah, just, you know, something um, there. like in, when you look at creation, I think it stems from first of all, there just weren't a seagoing people. They they were afraid of the the sea, and for whatever reason, I'm not exactly sure. But one of the issues that you see in Genesis, especially in a lot of the Midrash and Mishnah, is their understanding that God overcomes the forces of evil. And so the sea represented the evil abyss and chaos to them. And so God overcomes that. In fact, notice in Revelation, John makes that curious point. He says, and there was no sea or no longer a sea. He talks about the New Jerusalem. They were not a sea-loving people. See, that bums you and I out because we like sailboats and, you know, barbecues and volleyball and all that good stuff not so much with them and so do you understand then why they're caught on the sea in the storm and then christ comes walking out to them and what does job 9 8 ask the question who is it that can trample down the waves of the sea well it's yahweh and so jesus is yahweh who comes and subdues the sea for his people and so we're seeing this no pun intended the same thing again here so for whatever reason i don't even know all the background as to why the sea was so terrible but it stems from their understanding. What do the uh, the fundamentalist Muslims and the uh, terrorists? What do they always say they're going to do to us? They're going to drive us into the sea. Into the sea. sea, right? Very, very good point. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I hope that helps. If if anyone knows any more about why the sea was so terrible, that'd be a great research project. So. I didn't know if it was God's dominion over it or the uh, fear of Satan coming from there. I mean, which was it? Oh. Die at sea and not have a that was exactly another fear. You want a body out of the sea. Right. Turn your Bibles one, real quickly, Isaiah 27, 1. Let me just show you where this another image comes from. This ties in, though, originally, I think, to their fear of the sea as the place of chaos in the abyss. Isaiah 27, 1. Now, remember in Isaiah 26, God had just pointed out that his people were saved from the wrath and they'll be hidden in rooms at the end of Isaiah 26, Right. They're going to be hidden in rooms. I did that in our all of a discourse. He's going to hide them. He says, come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your door. Hide yourselves for a little while until my wrath has passed you by. That's the end of Isaiah 26. Isaiah 27.1. In that day, Yahweh with his hard and great and strong wind, I'm sorry, great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Okay, so that's where the imagery comes from. Satan comes from the abyss. The Antichrist comes from the abyss. It's the sea, but God rides upon the sea. He's the one who's sovereign over all creation. So, yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these great truths. We thank you that you are sovereign over all things and that no matter what problems we have, that we can come to you knowing that You are coming again to save us and to spare us from this wrath to come. We thank you for forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.